Welcome to Shakespeare and Pal, episode 22, Osamu Tezuka's Merchant of Venice, or Tezuka Osamu's Venice no Shonin. Do you want to correct my pronunciation there, Sophie? I mean, it's pretty fine, actually. Venice no Shonin, yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay, fine. Okay, so if I don't pronounce it like an arsehole. Yeah, just don't pronounce it like an arsehole. <laughs> In case any introduction were needed, this is a podcast called Shakespeare and Pals, where we go through the works of Shakespeare in chronological order, taking detours into some of his influences and his influences. It's taken us 20 episodes to get to that summary of the show. This time, we go into one of Shakespeare's influences. The famous godfather of manga, Osamu Tezuka. You might know him from Astro Boy, Kimber the White Lion, or Princess Knight, but no, as a sideline, he also did these strangely faithful adaptations of dark Western literature, such as. No, I'll let you keep talking. I'll let you keep talking, but I will I will fight you on the strangely uh, accurate adaptations, as you know, as you yourself know and have explained to me. But anyway. Yes, Sophie, I, he is. I will say that when you hear the guy who made Astro Boy also adapted Crime and Punishment, it is more accurate than you think that is. It is certainly... He is called the Walt Disney of the East. It, his version of Crime and Punishment is certainly more accurate to Crime and Punishment than Walt Disney's version of Crime and Punishment would have been accurate to Crime and Punishment. I haven't seen that one. I, I, to be honest, I haven't read that one. Uh, I've mostly read um, The Firebird and Blackjack. Oh, Those were my two. His late career dark stuff. Ah, are they dark? Okay, no, actually, they are on the dark side, aren't they? I should not have... They are dark in the way... And I I have began this by saying he is the maker of Astro Boy and Kimber the White Lion in order to make the fact that he did Merchant of Venice seem a bit more surprising, a bit more shocking. However, you know, if you look at his work as a whole, his more serious work, his Buddha, his Tori no Hi, no Hi no Tori, his yeah. Phoenix... His later works, they, his later works do have a kind of morbidness to them, or not morbidness, but a kind of uh, grotesquerie to them. They it's are dark in the way, they, they are, I will put it like this, I mean this in all seriousness, his works are Dickensian. This simultaneously over-the-top cartoony ridiculous, simultaneously comedic at every point, but also deeply serious, deeply earnest, deeply heartfelt ruminations on what it is to be human in an imperfect society. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely um, Firebird was a lot more philosophical than I gave it credit for when I was reading it, I because I was an actual child reading it, like from uh, at the latest 15 years old. Um, probably I shouldn't have been reading them because I kept asking, like, oh, what, 
uh, why do you, what happens do you think when we die? Like to my mother a lot at the time I was reading it and she was like, How old were you when this God. happened? I don't know. Uh, but it was definitely before like uh, year nine. So it was eh, eh, like at least 10, at least 10. Um, so maybe not as, you know, horrifying as like a six-year-old going, oh, by the way, what what happens when we die? Like, do we uh, get reincarnated or something? No, I, it, I was just more of a... And your mother said, stupid girl, there's only dirt and darkness. And she was like, please stop, I'm driving. I, I cannot concentrate on your talking while I'm driving. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. Anyway, um, and also, um, I think Tezuka's also quite big for Blackjack, at least in the um, in the anime world, in the anime comic lovers world, just because it's it's such an edgy boy comic. It's good, it's good, but it's still an edgy boy comic. But he's anyway, the, he's the best surgeon in the world, but he's also a bit of a bad boy who doesn't play by the rules. He'll make you a heart out of a sandwich. Oh, but you better pay him $50,000 or he's going to take that heart away. Is that pretty that much the tone, Sophie? Yeah, that's pretty much. Also, also, why is he working beyond the law? When Well, that's because he's trying to, like, gain revenge for, um... Because he was his mum, I think, was sold land that was still filled with landmines, and um, they really shouldn't have approved it for sale. And um, he lost a good chunk of his body. Well, at least he got burned a lot on most of his body, um, and also lost his mum. And he has vowed revenge. Yeah, the thing about blackjack is when you hear that. Oh, this is a a medical thriller, and that Tezuka trained to be a doctor. He stuck, that was his fallback career. He trained at the Osaka School of Medicine. And you think, oh, this is going to be somewhat realistic. No, no, it's just the most cartoony vision of what doctor, being a doctor is like and the most absurd surgeries you can imagine. Yep. I mean, some of them are quite fun. Uh, he makes a homunculus um, from a person who had, like, twins' organs still in her body. So that was fun. That was interesting. That was a cute little episode. Um, yeah, no, she, he does some random stuff. Oh, he um, he does surgery on a boy whose mum thinks he's possessed um, and they, he, she pays the money. And he's like, I'm not going to do surgery on a kid who's still healthy. Like, But then he's given the money. He's like, okay, cool, fine, I'll do it. Um, and he does the surgery. The parent later goes, actually, my son was fine. He just cut into my son for the money. And then later in the story, he was like, actually, your child was sick. You, it was completely different. But here's the files. Here's the um, diagnosis. Here's the tumor that I removed from him in a plastic bag. Here you go. Like He was fine. He's fine now. You should get him to a proper doctor to make sure that, you know, I didn't kill you. I didn't. Yeah, it's fine. This is, this is, let's get back to <laughs> I was going, we usually begin by saying, what is our relationship with the person we are talking about today? But I think we've shown that we have quite a familiar relationship with him. You, Sophie, as a half-Japanese lady, this is your cultural heritage, isn't it? It kind of is, yeah. I have a keychain, actually, of um, Jack Blackjack characters, um, enamel pen characters. They're old now, so they're very yellowed up, but I have it. 
my relationship with Osamu Tezuka, like most people who get into anime as a teenager, you hear, oh, well, the original guy who did this, the great granddaddy was Osamu Tezuka, who did Astro Boy. And of course, you've heard of Astro Boy. But then you hear, oh, no, not just Astro Boy. Also, these other weird, darker things from later on in his career, like Buddha, like Blackjack, like all like the Book of Human Insects. That's one I loved as a teenager. <laughs> Have you read the Book of Human Insects, Sophie? No, I and I don't think I want to. <laughs> yes, you can have a you can be a dedicated fan of Osamu Tezuka and yet have only read a few of his works because apparently he drew something like 150 page 150,000 pages during his lifetime 250 series or stuff like that I, I don't know how to count exactly how much he did but he did a lot he did a lot like I'm sure his Wikipedia page just goes on forever but one of the things that he also did was he liked Shakespeare. He liked Western works of literature. He liked Western culture. And if you are an artist in one medium, one of the things that you like to do is to adapt works of art from... One of the things you like to do is adapt the works of art you love. So he has adapted quite a lot of Western works of literature. As I said, he has adapted Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And oh, if his Raskolnikov isn't the cutest little rascal you can imagine, you see him with his axe raised above the old woman. Oh, he's so adorable. Uh, <laughs> he has, but... Recently, there was an entire collection of his Shakespeare-influenced stuff, and I bought that collection, and I will admit that most of the 300 pages, it sort of tangentially related to Shakespeare. It's, it's an Astro Boy storyline that's somewhat based on Romeo and Juliet. It's a spy story from another series that is somewhat set around a production of Taming of the Shrew. As far as I know, his only direct straight adaptation of Shakespeare was The Merchant of Venice. And let's be fair to him, this is far more than anyone could have guessed. Would you have guessed, before I brought this up to you and forced it in your face, Sophie, would you have guessed that he did his own 40-page adaptation of Shakespeare? Never. And after having done it, can you still not quite believe it? I mean, I believe it, but it's not very good. It's um, good. It's sort of nice. It's it's of its time, I guess. And also, it's only forty pages, so he's um, like I he, Shylock no longer has a daughter, first of all. So um, yeah, there was a lot of shortcuts, and um, in a way, uh, let's leave this for these main part of it yeah yeah that's exactly what i was thinking but i just like mm, is it good is it good i don't know i don't think so mostly because it's really hard to do such a dense text like merchant of venice um well in four zero pages let's let's say that the worst you can say about this is that this is top, top quality classic illustrated. 
this is, you know, those book, those little comics you give to kids who can't be bothered reading the assigned text for their high school English class. This is that, but like ten times better than whatever those are. Even if you don't like it, this is that. Better. Better than that. Japan actually does pretty good at those. Like, there's a whole series of, um, you know, uh, his- historical beings, historical persons. I, I, I think I did see one called the Manga Jane Eyre. And it, one part doesn't really work because you have this girl saying, oh, I'm just a plain girl. But she has the sparkly eyes, the flawless skin of a conventional Moe girl. <laughs> Osamu Tezuka, and I'm getting most of this biographical information from Christopher Harding's The Japanese, A History in Twenty Lives, specifically his chapter on Tezuku, no, not Tezuku, no, his chapter on Tezuka Osamu, Dreamweaver. Osamu Tezuka was born in November 1928. So while World War II was a formative memory for him, he didn't directly serve in it. So that is one thing we don't need to hold against him. He did work in a factory during the war for military purposes. So, But, you know, he wasn't one of those Japanese who was all for the war. After the war, he accepted that, no, no, that was a, that was a bit of a no-no. We shouldn't have done that. That's a good thing, isn't it, Sophie? Yes. Apparently, I read this in another book. I forget. I think it's like, I forget. It was some book of essays on... It was some book of essays on Astro Boy. And there was some historical anecdote that one of the primary inspirations for Astro Boy was during the American occupation after World War II, Osamu Tezuka was walking home and there were some drunk American GIs and they started shouting at him and he started saying something to them and they were too drunk and too English speaking to understand him and eventually they beat him up. And at the end of this, his idea was... And at the end of getting beaten up by these American GIs, he thought to himself, you know, the problem there was a failure to communicate. I think it would be nice if there was a robot who could communicate with all the world. So that was one of the germs, Sophie. That is probably the best thing to come out of a hate crime, don't you think? You know what? Yeah, that's... It's not the worst thing to come out of a hate crime. And he probably had the uh, the best. He probably gave those Americans too much of a benefit of the doubt there. Mm. Yeah, no, just generally World War II stuff involving any party, especially Japan, just makes me go, yes, um, quietly sweating, nodding, yes. Quietly sweating some more. So Tezuka came from a solidly middle-class family. His family was a bunch of doctors and lawyers. And according to the book, Christopher Harding's A Japanese History in 20 Lives, apparently his mother was descended from Hattori Hanzo, 
I am not going to take his word for that. I'm just going to repeat that. That's that sounds like the sort of thing that the family says about itself, but which turns out to be utter nonsense. We can tell Tezuka's early artistic influences. His father was a film buff and had his very own film projector. So Tezuka could watch all of these Western films, the Charlie Chaplin and stuff like that. And his mother was a music buff and he, and she always took him to see the... I can never pronounce this. My eyes always just say, ah, yes, that's the name of this place, but I've never had to say this before. The Takarakuza Review. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> so close. So close. It's Takarazuka. Oh, yes. I've written it wrong. The Takarazuka Review. Yeah. My, I've never... It's one of those things where I see, ah, it begins with a T, ends with an A, then there's review after it. Ah, yes, that's the all-female musical troupe. Yes. Um, and this was very important for his career because this is how he was introduced to the story of Pinocchio. And what was his most famous creation, Astro Boy? A story of a fake boy who eventually becomes a real boy. Yes. How does, how I want, I, now I want to watch Takarazuka Pinocchio because that would be fascinating. This would have to be a 1930s version of it. Yeah, that's true. His early work was done while he was studying to be a doctor. His comic career did take off during that time, but you know, like a good, studious Japanese boy, he graduated from being a from Osaka School of Medicine, so that he had a fallback career in case the Astro Boy money dried up. It never did, and he continued to produce over 250 works during the 1950s, and in the 1960s began his work on animation, he giving us the first major Japanese animation, Astro Boy. And quite a lot of the limited animation techniques of modern Japanese anime can be traced back to when he was starting up his animation studio in the 1960s, where the limited animation was apparently because there were just not that many animators in the entirety of Japan. When you only have a few people who it is possible to work for you, even if you have the most popular property in your entire country, you can't get workers if there are no workers. Yeah. In the 1960s, there was some popular backlash against him, as there is against all culture-defining figures, because they viewed his work as being a bit too westernized, a bit lacking in radicalness in terms of politics and style. He tried to respond to these charges by making his weirder, more radical stories. As we've mentioned, Sophie, he did his Phoenix there. That wonderful work of wholesomeness, isn't that right? That wonderful work that really is just to turn your brain off at the door, isn't it? It doesn't make young children think of death, does it? Uh, yeah, no, never. For 14 to 16, maybe even 20 volumes of those. There's a lot of them. <laughs> They're all so, great. Yes. So just, you know, just right now, Sophie, do you want to recommend any works of Osamu Tezuka in case we've already wet their whistle? Any works of Osamu Tezuka the viewers can go, the, the listeners. Okay. Uh, 
So if you want a classic Disney-esque um, one, then Lady Knight or um, Direct Princess Campbell. Knight. The, uh, yeah, the Lady Knight, Princess Knight. Um, sometimes it, it might have been translated as the Ribbon Knight. Nibon no Kishi. It's about a, uh, a princess that was obviously born a girl, um, and then but uh, the mother but died. There was a mix-up in heaven, and they put a boy's heart into her. Yeah, yeah, I've forgotten about that detail. Um, and at but, the yeah. very end, you know, she saves the day, but then they take out the boy's heart and put back in a girl's heart, and then she gets married and settles down. Oh, no, wait, was that what happened in part two? Because I only had, like, part one in the um, library of, my, of the school. So, wait, no, that's the worst ending! No! Okay. I might be, I'm, that, I'm pretty sure that's pretty much how it ended up. Maybe I got the details wrong, but I do remember, mm, mm, this is definitely that kind of, oh yes, children, let's break barriers here. But no, no, at the very end, let's come back inside those barriers. Oh no. Yeah, well, in a perfect world, it would have been a great trans allegory, but no. Um, that's unfortunate. But anyway, uh, if you just like the vibes, then... Um, of like a princessy, but also, you know, that I'm having my heart broken right now. So yeah, uh, you like the vibes? That one's good. Um, Blackjack. Uh, if you want to be surprised by how detailed the um, medical pictures are, um, then that's a really good one. Um, it's very like teenager edge because just it's a grown man looking for. Um, revenge constantly and you know shutting himself off in a tiny cottage on a cliff and he like people who want to do you know um surgeries beyond the the bounds of the law then they have to like a go there and b pay him a butt ton of money um also there's just a lot of content in that one uh buddha apparently is really good um and yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of like his short story um, anthologies that are also very good. But for me, I say, uh, yeah, Bird, Bird Firebird, Phoenix, um, the Ribbon Knight that is still breaking my heart right now, and Blackjack. But those are all the things that I like. So <laughs> very good, very good uh, introduction slash... Uh, What's the word? I'm losing my words today. Recommendations from, from yours truly, from myself. Yes. I will second the recommendation of Buddha. It is, I, I, I said it before and I'll say it again, his work is Dickensian. That simultaneously ridiculous and earnest. That willingness to clash tones together in a way that isn't clashing it is just a recognition that you can have ah this tone right next to this tone right next to that tone right next to this tone he it is a so the work called buddha it is as you can tell about the buddha it takes place from before the buddha's birth all the way up until his death over the course of eight volumes and it is by turns ridiculous, it is by turns heart-moving, it is a good uh, beginner's explanation to the philosophy of Buddhism. Yeah, probably. Um, have we talked much about uh, Tezuka Osamu's art style? Because I, there's... Yes, it is 
the audience should imagine early Disney. Imagine early Disney. But then what you I, I'll put it like this. Audience, have you seen a picture of Astro Boy? Have you seen Astro? It's that. That's his style. Yeah, you're not wrong. And um, especially because when he gets into, you know, darker toned stuff, it's the tone and the art style wildly clash. I um, won't say clash. It's more they do go together. They, I, I mean, maybe this is a fundamental philosophical disagreement we have, Sophie, but I feel that his cartoony style perfectly fits anything he puts his hand to. Yeah, no, maybe. No, sometimes I just, I, I, sometimes I really struggle to take his message of tragedy seriously in some of his later stuff. The Merchant of Venice by Osamu Tezuka. Now, this story is quite closely based on Shakespeare's version. He does make simplifications, he does change quite a few things, and we're going to get into that. But the, oh, the biggest change you'll need to know is that this is a modern dress adaptation. It's set in the modern day, circa 1959. A Japanese man's idea of what Venice is like in 1959, circa a of what an Englishman in the 16th century's idea of Venice was like back then. So, you know... Don't come to this for any kind of historical verisimilitude. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um... We have, I'll just give the plot, we have Antonio, who is a merchant of Venice. And Shylock says, you really are the merchant of Venice. Did you like that title drop, Sophie? No. We I have Antonio, who is a good, upstanding gentleman, and he is saying, put all of my stock into that one ship going to England. And after he makes that deal, then Shylock comes in. Shylock is an underworld loan shark. And Antonio pretty much spits in his face and says, no, you're a bad man, Shylock. Then we cut to Portia. Portia his father has just died, but before he's died, he has said, you know, I am a TV magnate, so I'm going to make my death a TV event. And so he floats up into the sky on balloons. This is the kind of story we have here, Sophie. I <laughs> wish the audience could see your face. I can't see your face, but I assume I know what it's like. <laughs> so dumb. But, his t but her TV magnate father says, your engagement, your marriage is also going to be a TV event. It's going to be a quiz show. The person who's going to marry you has to pick which one of these three chests is the right chest to get your hand in marriage. The lead box, the silver box, or the gold box. Oh, what could it be? Oh, dear. <laughs> it's, it's almost as simple as a fairy tale. And then the young strapping lad Bassanio comes to Venice and he needs some research money from Antonio because he's a good, respectful, studious Japanese, I mean, Venetian boy. He asks for money from Antonio and Antonio says, I have no money on me, but my name is good as credit. Go to anyone, literally anyone in this city for a loan and they will give it to you. And so who does Bassanio go to? 
Ah, that's right. He goes to the evil loan shark, Shylock. And Shylock says, I'll give you 3,000 ducats on the condition that Antonio will give me one pound of his flesh if you can't pay it back. And Bassanio says, wait, wait, I didn't mean that. But Shylock says, too late, you signed the contract, go away. This is one of the changes that Shakespeare makes. We'll get into the changes that uh, Osamu Tezuka makes to this, but it's all in the details that make this a very different kind of story from Shakespeare. <laughs> and then it turns out that Antonio's shipment hit the one ship that he put all his money into. That sinks, or it seems to sink. That sinks, and Antonio is ruined. And so Shylock takes Antonio to court. And then, but then, Antonio meets Portia, and no. And then Bassanio meets Portia. They fall in love. Ah, and Bassanio goes to play the game show. He picks the right box that gets and gets her hand in marriage. Ah, but then immediately he hears that his best friend Antonio is on trial for failure to pay a debt. They go to the trial, and it seems like Shylock is winning. It seems like Shylock will get Antonio's pound of flesh. But, oh, there's a... Someone comes to save the day. It's Portia, dressed up as a boy. And she becomes the judge, I think? I don't think that this is an appropriate way. Maybe this is how courts work in Venice, where you can just have some stranger come to be the judge in this, when there is a tremendous conflict of interest involved here. But anyway, just like in Shakespeare, she catches Shylock in a bit of contractual loophole, where she says, yes, you can have one pound of flesh, but you can't have any blood. Because that's how the law works. And Shylock says, oh no! You've thwarted me. And he tries to run away, but then he's arrested. And then there's a happy ending, as it turns out that no, Antonio's ship wasn't actually sunk. No, it comes back safe and sound. Happy ending. Antonio has his money. Portia is married to Bassanio. And also, two minor characters also get married. So it's a happy ending. Isn't it a happy story, Sophie? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I was saying that, you know, Tezuka's work is Dickensian. It mixes the high and the low. It mixes ridiculousness with heartfelt humanness. In this story, in his adaptation of Osama, no, in his adaptation of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, it is mainly the ridiculous end. It is a very light-hearted version of the Merchant of Venice story. There's no real pathos to this one. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, the... <laughs> you... The, 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 at the start, when um, Antonio and Shylock meet for the first time, well, they don't meet for the first time, but they, you know, they meet in the first time inside the play, um, Antonio also says, uh, you seem to work under the pseudonym we the... should we should note to the audience that uh i think that there's going to be or there recently has been an english translation of this story in a collection of osamu tezuka's shakespeare works we both as you know we can read japanese because we're cultured 
i.e. we love anime and Sophie I'd say you know you you are technic you technically have a familial reason for knowing the language yeah I technically do but yeah no I have yeah, been told that I have in Japanese and so we might be giving a less than good translation of it yeah but yeah um so on page uh, I don't know one okay page 111 of this one because it's part of an anthology um in the in the underworld you're known as the carbide lamp um okay in the japanese it's asetiden lampu and i'm like what on earth is that um i google it go to wikipedia and i press uh english um, version of this article please and it says carbide lamps carbide lamps or acetylene gas lamps is like okay so that's what in japan they're known for um there's actually a wikipedia page dedicated to um asetirin lampu tezuka osamu and it's basically just a recurring character which is okay. this person i was wondering about that because i for a separate purpose i have translated this comic and i got to this point and said what the there's no way to translate this this is i know that this is a reference to something i know this is meant to sound sinister but why does it sound sinister yeah no it's it's an in, it's very much an inside joke um and there are a lot of inside jokes in this i mean i noticed mainly the kinds of visual inside jokes like for some reason occasionally shylock will have a little candle popping out of his back I have no idea why that's there. I assume it's a thing that he does occasionally, Tezuka does occasionally in his work. And there's also, depending, well, there's there's one other one where during the court scene on page... Ah, on page 134 or so, there's a little sort of squat creature with a massive pointy nose. This isn't an anti-Semitic thing. This is a purely separate thing. <laughs> it is. He has these in-jokes where he is unafraid just to insert into his work occasionally. And even in his better works, like Buddha, he will have these shots where it's meant to be a serious scene, but then he'll have like a little joke where, oh, I accidentally put in my silly doodle in here, or I accidentally put in a picture of myself here. Let's change that. And then we'll get right back to being a fairly straightforward scene about the Buddha meeting someone. So he has this thing where he's not afraid to break the tone of a work. Yeah. And um, actually, the... The candle is part of the inside joke. Okay. So apparently he used to have a friend, according to this Wikipedia page, he used to have a friend um, who had a weird, like, dent in the back of his head, and they used to joke that um, you could just, uh, you could probably stand a candle in that little dent and also light it, and would it, it wouldn't, like, move. So... This character is based on that friend who has a weird dent on the back of his head who could potentially put a candle into that dent. And that's why also he is called a carbide lamp because he looks like a little dude holding a lamp on his head. That is it. Yes, I hate so it. This is a lot of, yes. Uh, Tezuka isn't afraid to go for an almost incomprehensible joke. Yes. But apparently, um, this so 
this Shylock character, um, I'm going to be controversial here and say uh, Tezuka Osamu draws the same face a thousand times. Um, so the professor, not the, so, so there's two professors in Astro Boy. Um, there's the biological dad of Astro Boy who lost his son, and that's why he made the robot, and he, then he Made by like, Nicolas Cage in the movie. Yes. Um, I did not know that. Okay, Jesus. Um, but anyway, uh, so he has the biological dad, and then he has the, the, the heart dad, the chosen dad, who has a big-ass nose and fluffy-ass hair onto the sides and just entirely bald. Um, those two characters recur and just or reoccur. I'm not sure how which one which word to use um, in every single, practically every single um, work he's ever drawn under yes, a different I'm currently name. Looking at the jury scene, and you can see Professor Elephant. I don't know the Japanese name. You can see Professor Elephant just there in the jury, glaring at Antonio. And um, although he think... did call his, his star system. Where you, one of the criticisms people make about manga is that all the characters' faces and bodies look basically the same, maybe with a few different accessories. Tezuka, he did make very distinct characters, very distinct silhouettes. And so that he wouldn't have to keep on making new distinct characters and distinct silhouettes, he would reuse these character designs in lots of different comics. And it's like just how an actor would would have different roles in different places, which is somewhat interesting in this work we're reading right now in this short story collection, because we have Bassanio, you know, a good, studious boy, and then you turn the page into the next story in this anthology, and there you see Bassanio getting abducted by a jungle queen. Yeah, no, he, it's, he's a, he just keeps drawing the same faces. I can't stress enough. It's very rare to see one very unique face for maybe this one specific like story, and it just rinse and repeats. And then you never see that face again. And J Blackjack is very much that face, mostly because you know he has a zombie face. He has stitches all over his body. Um, but yeah, that that's that confused me a lot as a kid until I've, it finally clicked that this man is actually a little bit lazy about how he draws his characters. I'd, let's say efficient. Yeah, efficient. Um, actually, proficient is probably fair because apparently this um, carbide lamp man um, is often like the bad character, the shady character that isn't strictly speaking like diabolically evil, but just, you know, shady evil. So, shall we get into, like, we've been talking about Tezuka in general. Shall we get into, like, this story? Because th this, so Shylock in this one, they have, re so I put it like this. In the original Shakespeare thing, you will have slightly more moral ambiguity. Yes, Shylock might be an arsehole. You might not want to spend much time with him. He's probably not the best most kind-hearted moneylender, but he is a businessman and he enters into a business-like relationship with, uh, this is certainly a reading of Merchant of Venice that I will go into more depth when we get to our episode on the Merchant of Venice, but the way that works is that 
Shylock, he's a bit of an arsehole. He's been spit upon by society. They don't like him. He, both for racist reasons and because he is an arsehole. He enters into an agreement with Antonio and as a collateral, he says, a pound of your flesh. Now, in this context, in that context, he doesn't really mean it. It's more just a sort of, look, I know you're good for it. Here's a, I know you're going to pay me back, but you've been treating me like an arsehole. I'm going to make a rather dark joke about fantasizing about stabbing you a bit. A pound of your flesh. It's almost like a joke. But then what happens later on in the story is that his own daughter runs away from him runs away with the Christian, and so Shylock is fil filled with anger at this society, and he says, well, I'm going to lash out at something, so I'm going to make this joke provision in our contract a real thing, and I'm going to get that pound of flesh from you because I want to hurt someone. And, yes, and then at the very end, during the trial scene, you know, the famous twist that, oh, you can take a pound of flesh, but you can't take any of the blood. Now, depending on how you read that, if you read that in a realistic way, this is obviously a bit of satire. Because, you know, it's a common point in law that you cannot promise someone something, but deny them the means to get that thing. You cannot promise someone a house, but say, oh no, I didn't sell you the land. No, if you sell someone the house, you have to also allow them to land the houses on. That sort of thing. Even at the time, this was an accepted thing. So the uh, cynical reading of that is that the court already hated Shylock and they were looking for any excuse to screw him over. So in that one, it's morally ambiguous. In Shakespeare's version, it's morally ambiguous. In Tezuka's version, he really makes this into a story of goodies and baddies. Shylock comes on, you know, hunched over. He has a... I think he has a moustache. Maybe I inserted that in my mind, but he... Ah, yes, he does have a, a tiny little moustache, a top hat. He looks like a 1920s movie villain. So he's hunched over all the time, like a sniveling little villain. And Antonio, he's like a big, you know, barrel-chested, attractive man standing up. And it begins with... I think there's one line where Antonio says, what's a bad guy like you doing in a place like this? So, yes, Tezuka is making this a story of heroes and villains. He is simplifying the morality. I won't say this is necessarily a bad thing, but this is the fundamental change Tezuka has made. He is making Te Shylock unambiguously a baddie, and he's making Antonio Bassanio and the rest unambiguously the goodies. Yes, that is correct. Um, and that's probably the easiest thing to do. Because, um, again, it's four zero pages, four, 40. It's, it's short. It is quite short. Um, and you almost... But then again, like, just how rudely... I guess Antonio acts. Part of me is like, mm, are you sure you didn't deserve it, Antonio? I mean, he he does he does give an explanation, which is that you are he said you are that underworld loan shark, carbide lab involved in extortion, kidnap, or something else. Uh, because of you, one of my friends has committed suicide. So that sort of gives him the the justification. Again, in the 
I'd say that part of this is that it's set in the modern day. Whereas the thing about in Shakespeare's one, you know, this is the Renaissance era. You you can't get good loans at that time, really. You needed to, because of, you know, laws against charging interest on loans, you had to go to a Jewish person who was allowed to do these things. Except by making this a modern day version of it, you need to give them another reason to go to Shylock and another reason why Shylock is perhaps a bad guy. Because, you know, nowadays, charging interest on loans, any bank can do that. So Tezuka really makes... It's not just that he's, he's he needs to be a loan shark, but he's not just a loan shark. He is also a, a, involved in all this underground criminal stuff that we don't see. It's just there to make him seem like a monster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even the kidnapping, extortion, everything else doesn't really get re revealed until the trial at the end. Just at the very start, it's just, hey, you're a bad money lender. You're a loan shark. One of your, um, one of my friends committed suicide because of your interest rates, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, spitting is still rude. Um, I will say that. Um, and what do you think about the TV magnet choice? I felt that this was somewhat a clever choice because you know, in Shakespeare's one. I will choose who my daughter marries based on who picks the right box here. Now, that is already a bit fairy tale. It's already leaving, you know, realism a bit. So regardless of which, how you adapt it, you need to sort of make that feel somewhat justified, either by leaning into the fairy tale aspect of it or by doing something else. In this one, they say... It's like a quiz show. It's that's it. That's why her father does it. It is a weird thing to do. Well, of course, it's a weird thing to do. Her father loves television and wants even his death to be a TV event. I, I mentioned before his death is. I I don't think Tezuka intended us to take it literally, but it does seem that he is committing euthanasia by flying up into the stratosphere by balloons. Is that how you read it, Sophie? It kind of does, doesn't it? Or maybe he's just like making sure, okay, I've, I've got morphine in my veins, I'm about to lose consciousness, good day, everybody. And I'd say that on a slightly more, you know, innocent level, the, the balloons could purely be a metaphor where it is that he has died. He dresses up as an angel and he has died and then all the balloons are sort of a... One of those metaphors that his drawing inserts into the diegetic world of the comic, uh, yeah. even though we're not meant to literally take that as what's happening. Although on the next screen... <laughs> yes, they, they do show an entire band playing and showing it on a TV screen as, and, and, a, and a news presenter saying, Oh, there! Eh, hello everyone, there we see Mr. Monto going up into the sky. Bananas. Oh, oh, um, yeah. The the choices for the first two main uh, contestants for yes. the boxes. I, I'll put it like this. Maybe you'll disagree with me, Sophie, but I think that you know to give Tezuka his credit, he does tone down the anti-Semitism. 
Oh, I, the anti-Semitism doesn't even exist. Yes. Like, no... Shylock does have a big nose, but, you know, no. most of his characters have big noses. I think Shylock has the smallest nose of everyone here. I, I'd say that some of the heroes have... Uh... Oh, yeah, actually, yes. Uh, well, maybe the shape of the nose could be viewed as a bit anti-Semitic. The shape of the nose is very... It can be viewed as anti-Semitic, yeah. But every... But in terms of size... He might actually have the smallest nose. It definitely dips below the lip line. But, yeah. Actually, but, in the yes. correction, um, the smallest nose of the men. Because, obviously, uh, the, the ladies have just practically no nose. They have little dainty noses. Yes. Uh... Um, I think, actually, I think the smallest nose of the men, and this brings us back to the point where we give him credit for toning down to the anti-Semitism. Uh, but when the African prince comes in, mm, yes, he uh, he doubles down on the anti-black racism. It's it's comically bad. Um, and I was like, it's not even. It's almost um, Tintin bad. Yeah, no, because this is bad. This is. Uh, I mean, like Japan is not known for. Uh, uh, racial sensitivity. We have here, so the African prince. In Shakespeare's original one, we have the Prince of Morocco. And yes, he's a figure of fun, and he is uh, perhaps a bit anti-black, but mainly he is meant to be a parody of a sort of bombastic Christopher Marlowe, Tamburlaine kind of prince. And, you know, he does make reference to his skin colour, like he says to her, Miss says to Portia, mislike me not for my complexion. And then at the end, Portia said, let all of his complexion choose me so, i.e. I don't want to marry a black man. That's what she says. So, you know, a bit racist, a bit racist. Shakespeare doubles down. We have massive Afro, big lips. Uh, he says, I might be the crow's colour, but I am a, I'm quite a looker. So, yes, thankfully... Uh, this is only three pages. I will say that maybe my Japanese isn't good enough, but I think, I hope he isn't doing a sort of racist accent. Sophie, you know this better. Is he doing a racist accent? Uh, he's not doing a racist accent. Um, uh, he, he doesn't say crow, um, but he... So he uses Gozaru, which is um, a classic, a samurai character or old-fashioned, old-timey character would use. Um, and he says, hi, I am king. I may be black, but I'm handsome. And, uh, and Portia's like, tis it, I'm Portia. Um, thankfully, he really does not speak much at all. Um, he shows up for maybe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12, 13, 13 panels over one and a bit pages. Like the first panel he shows up is in the last panel of the first page, full page of him, and then like top three panels of the next page. It's very short. And, and when, he, lose, very when he loses the game, he whips out his scimitar and starts screaming. Which he wasn't, e like how he wasn't even holding a scimitar at the time. Where did it come from? Did his top hat, you know, turn into it? I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, he's like, oh, which one should I choose? Um, go gold box. Uh, and the, on the gold box, it says the person who chooses me, uh, I will give you the thing that all, that everyone desires, basically. And it's like, oh, okay, it's this one. Open it. It's bread. It's bread inside. Yes. Yes, it is. So, so yes, I think from how we set this up, you know, who will get Porsche's hand? There's a lead box, there's a silver box, and there's a gold box. Anyone who knows how stories work knows that it's the lead box. That's it. Yep. <laughs> but uh, then we have the second person. So let's move on to the more tasteful satires in this. <laughs> we, get, we get the second suitor. And this is a very arrogant actor who says, Don't you know who I am? I'm the famous actor. Shortcake. That's an American name. <laughs> I'm Shortcake. Ah, uh, I... Th this... If, depending on, like, how you take it, this can be a bit of a queerphobic um, stereotype. Um, it kind of looks like this man's wearing lipstick. Um, the way he reacts is very melodramatic. Um, and the way that his speech is written, um, it's very flamboyant. Okay, yes. Uh, my Japanese wasn't good enough to get that. Although I do note that, as you say, you know, maybe it looks like he's wearing lipstick, but also, you know that thing, how do you make a cartoon a woman? You draw eyelashes on it. This guy yeah. has eyelashes. <laughs> oh, and like, no, like, stress, cis straight person would have a stage main name Shortcake. Um, and also, um, Shortcake is usually a spon layer sponge cake. Um, and With often. A, bit of a soggy is bottom, isn't that right, Sophie? Hey, hey. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Um, I will say the meeting between um Bassanio and a Porsche is actually cute and natural. Um Yes, this is page 126 because uh, in this page, you know. Quite a lot of Osamu Tezuka's works, even though it's made in the 50s, can seem incredibly modern. This is in part because part of what, make, what made Western comics more modern was the influence of manga comics, which descend directly from Osamu Tezuka. So we have this one rather brilliant sequence where the panels, they begin on a newspaper then we go to another newspaper. Then we go to the newspaper closer up and we see, oh, there's a boat that sunk off the Pacific. Oh, that's probably Antonio's one. But no, no, that's foreshadowing. Now we cut again. The, the paper is blowing away. And then we see the feet. And we see the dress of Portia. Then we see the dress come up closer. Then Bassanio sees her. Then we cut to her. Then we cut to Bassanio. Then we cut to an uh, extreme close-up on her eyes. Then we cut to a close-up on Bassanio. Then Bassanio again. And then Bassanio, ah, oh, something has struck him. And then we have Bassanio thinking, 
Oh, who was that lady, that beautiful lady? Now, that is a brilliantly artistic scene, a brilliantly done cinematic way of showing that. Yeah, no, um, and it's far better than Bassanya going, I'm going to marry Rich in The Merchant of Venice, which is exactly what he does. Yeah, in this one, they do change the motivation for him asking Antonio for money. In the original one, you know, he needs a dowry and he needs to present himself well. So he asks Antonio, that's why he wants the money. The money is specifically to get Portia's hand. In this one, he's saying, oh, well, you know, I need some money to do my research. That's how I'm going to get a good degree. I think it's a good degree. It's um, he, he needs it because he's a scholar, I think. In this one, you know, he's a good Japanese boy. He's, he's a good Japanese Venetian boy. He wants to be a scholar. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, with um, he, yeah, he wants research money. Um, and the problem with the Japanese word for research, it can also mean experiments. It's just kenkyu. Um, so a kenkyu could mean just a research lab. Um, a research room or um, an experimental lab. It doesn't have such a big difference. Um, and when he does get um, his uh, his um, research done in three months, he he just writes to Antonio um, the Kenkyu Rombung. Um, Rombung is um, paper um, of usually of the academic kind uh the experimental or the research um notes is done <laughs> i now have the i now am a professor okay that's it that's literally all it says um so it doesn't even tell us what genre he's in he could be researching poetry we don't know we oh. could be he could be researching the, the the cutting edge of science we don't know there is no indication of what genre of study he'd been just spending his last three months on. He's a, he's a scholar. That's all you need to know. That, that's, that's all you need to know, apparently. Uh, but you know, because he's a scholar, he's smart enough to know the solution to the three-box puzzle. He opens up the box and he finds a big portrait of Portia inside of it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and on the lead one, it says, is, um, it, uh, I will open for those who um, are willing to give anything up, I believe. Yes, yeah, that yeah. is. Yes. That... Have the guts to throw away everything and anything. Or... And then finally, you are worthy of Portia, I guess, which is um, a choice. I mean, it's sort of if if these characters had anything close to a you know realistic psychology, that would be the one that everyone picks first because that's how stories work. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. But um, then, in all, but then immediately immediately after oh yes we're married oh antonio's in court oh god no yeah i i will um um what's the word defend bassanio's um integrity slash choices um in picking shylock is that while um 
Bassanio and Antonio are talking on a gondola because it's Venice um, and they wanted privacy. Um, Antonio's like, yeah, sure. I don't have anything on me, but my name is will be good as credit. So um, yeah, go to a bank. And then the the gondola driver, I guess? The it's person Gratiano. Who that was... In this one, Gratiano has become the gondola person. And he's like, yeah, no. Oh, you want to borrow money? I'm I was born and bred here. I know all the the um, peeps here. Oh, instead, um, he may, and also there's a joke of, oh, have some sushi. I mean, um, have some spaghetti. And he was going, God damn it. <laughs> um, but anyway, and he, but, um, so Grishano is the one that introduces him to Shylock. And I find um, this to be like, you know, you need to have some reason. You know, so Antonio said, my name's good with anyone. Okay, once you've said that, you need a reason why Bassanio goes to Shylock. In the original one, Antonio takes him to Shylock, because Shylock is the only one who gives out money in this city, uh, especially that amount of money. But in this one, it seems to be common knowledge that Shylock is a wrong'un, and yet Gratiano, he knows about Shylock, and yet he doesn't seem to know that he is a criminal. So it sort of creates a bit of a plot hole here. Yeah, or maybe yeah, I have no idea. Or maybe he is like it's a, maybe he's just you know a country local country. dude that's not interested. Yeah, see, he is point. He is put as being sort of a bit of a moron in one scene afterwards where he's visiting, he's visiting um, Antonio in jail, and he's rushing to meet Bassanio, and you know because he's a gondola driver, this is on page one hundred and thirty-one. Because he's a gondola driver. He uses his gondola on the road. He has wheels on his gondola and he's rowing his gondola across the road. Um, and the joke is... Um, <laughs> and the joke is expanded upon um, later when it's like, wait, you, you rowed your gondola across the, the, the land on wheels? Why did you do that? Let's get into a car. And they get into the car, except... Um, uh, he... He gets, he gets onto on the, the roof, roof of, of yes. the car going, yeah, no, I feel much more comfortable here. Which has been, it's very cute, but also bananas. Uh, yes, this is, uh, even in his much more serious work, Tezuka is not afraid of this kind of joke. Mm. And we love him for it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess we love him for it. <laughs> I, my very first note in my notes on this is that style very much combining cartoony and serious Dickensian. Only a pedestrian mind would feel the deep moments less because of the cartoony elements. And I didn't realize I was addressing that comment directly to you, Sophie. <laughs> I mean, like, do I think it's less? Not necessarily, because yeah, Tezuka is just this kind of artist. Um, like on the when they're at the um, uh, what is that place called? Trial, um, the courthouse. Um, Antonio is bowing at the the judge. You have a jury. Um, you have um the gallery looking on, and um. Yeah, actually, Tezuka, the character that is often Tezuka himself or based on, like, Tezuka himself is in the middle of that um, one, two, three, four, five-man jury. Um, 
he he has a weird uh what do i call him i can't call him a gremlin but this weird little like um call it's like sort a, of like doodle he he inserts a doodle into it a sort of recurring doodle throughout his work he is very triangular. He looks like a gnome. That's what I wanted. A big-nosed gnome with a single hair on his bald head going, yes, we are now bringing Shylock. Um, and, like, he's also a recurring weirdo. Um, and, like, yeah, no. I And, of course, Shylock already has a candle on the back of his head that is, like, often hidden by his top hat. He, I don't think less... Or I don't think the tension is broken. It still just makes me go, Tezuka, why? <laughs> That's all. I don't think it, yeah. And or I, I do find it funny that um, Shylock later, in a later page, um, starts sharpening his knife on his shoe. Yes, he is. <laughs> he, he immediately brings out his knife. He's like, I'm going to get this. He takes out his knife and he just starts saying, uh, I'm going to... Cut the meat from his chest well and good. Um, and then, you know, we everything happens in the trial. Uh, normal, and normal then what we have it. here, I mean, I might be misremembering the original Merchant of Venice, but I think in the original Merchant of Venice, Portia comes in as a defense attorney, whereas in this one, she seems to become the judge which is odd. I mean, I know it makes the plot a bit more efficient, but this does seem like a tremendous conflict of interest. And it seems even less... Like, th there is already a judge, and the judge says, oh, here's a new guy. Yeah, you take my job for now. Yeah, no, um, so in page 138, um, he Sherlock basically says, so, like, can we have, like, a verdict on this? That'd be great. And the judge says, wait, wait, um... A, a Bellario, um, Pro Professor Bellario, um, who, is, who is a study, who is a professor of law, is about to come along. Like, give us a second. And then the, the gnome man goes, ah, Bellario, professor has just arrived. Well, the assistant of the Bellario has just arrived. Um, and the judge's like, oh, thank God, cool. Um, so you must be um, Professor Bellario's um, replacement or assistant and um yeah no he he's had like a conflict um of scheduling so yeah i'm here as his um representative as you know everything about the the crime yeah we're good so i think he's technically not meant i to certainly be... have a license to practice law yeah is he meant to be a i think he's technically meant to be like a uh one of those people that you consult for their expertise and not strictly speaking a witness or a um, prosecutor or a defendant or yeah just one of those third parties that you like bring in as a consultant so i don't think it's strictly speaking a conflict of interest but it does feel a little bit fishy doesn't it yeah it's even more fishy than the original yeah <laughs> Uh, it's one of those things where in the original, you can sort of, I mean, maybe we're reading too deeply into this. <laughs> we certainly are. 
it is trying to bring in real legal uh, thoughts <laughs> into this. But, you know, would it have hurt them to make him a defence attorney? Well, make her a defence attorney. That would be a bit less weird than whatever's happening here. Mm, that's true, absolutely. Um, I do like the twist um, that uh, Tezuka gives in that you don't know it's Portia. Um, in in the play, you're like, um, Portia is like, I'm going to dress up as a dude and then we're going to follow him and see how it goes, baby. While um, there is none of that. Um, if you're a savvy reader of comics, you'll be like, okay, the way the eyebrows and the eyes are drawn on this very young looking feminine drawn um, consultant, it could be Portia, but you don't know for sure. Um, especially when uh, right before Portia does the, hey, actually, you can't draw blood. Right before that, um, she, she says, everyone's got to do the, you know, we have to follow the law. He gets to um, get his pound of flesh. And, and Bassanio and Antonio are, you know, having a teary guy. And it's like, Antonio, um, I have a friend called Portia. Um, and, but if I, if only I could have saved you, even at the expense of her and my own life, I would have done it. <laughs> and the Porsche um, defendant's like, uh, that's a thing to be saying. Uh, you're lucky she's not here to hear it. The twist happens. Um, and immediately he regrets giving the ring over. And, you know, because this is, you know, cartoony Tezuka, he's all covered in flop sweat, kicking his legs, saying, oh, no, why did I do that? Porsche's going to kill me. My wife's going to kill me. And then um, Porsche eventually, like, in, in literally in one panel, she's like, I hate you. I forgive you. And um, Bassanio, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, on the floor, fetal position, just sobbing. And then... In you like two awful, panels later, awful, she's awful in. Hidoi, 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 hidoi. <laughs> but you know, just two panels later, she's back in her um in her judicial robes with ring in hand, going, "Yeah, because you said something so cruel before, I just wanted to like tease you a little." And I was like, "Okay, cool, mean, cool, but I like it." At least this way, there's a reason why she did that as well. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I would have thrown my and my wife's life away to save you, Antonio. I'm so sorry that we couldn't do anything about it. And Portia's like, excuse you, I'm about to, like, turn this whole thing around. No lives needed to have been risked. How dare you? And well, that's why she takes the ring. Um, well, I think in the original Merchant of Venice, like, that... She just does it for, for funsies. I, I believe so. When we do the actual Merchant of Venice episode, how much do you think this comic will, will feature in that episode? Oh, I think it'll feature a lot. <laughs> hey, Professor Elephant shows up in the in one of the last panels to go, hey, it's a miracle, a miracle, and the trip is okay. <laughs> Yes, it's and also just to make the happy ending even more happy, it turns out that Portia's Portia's maidservant Nerissa gets married to Gratiano because you know it has to be as happy as happy, happy, happy as possible. Yep, 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 yep. And in the last 
page, which is like a single big panel, um, has all the characters bowing at the reader as, as a curtain goes down. And on top of the curtain is like a square speech bubble that says, uh, William Shakespeare is um, a was a man that was born in the English countryside 400 years ago. Uh, he was 26 until he was from 26 for 23 years. He wrote plays um, and apparently and hilariously, he only wrote um, happy plays at first. And then um, um, as as time went on, he wrote sadder stories. Um, you have Merchants of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, and um, Midsummer Night's Dreams are one are some of his comedies of that time that are famous. So you know, a very quick um, layman's introduction of Shakespeare for people who don't know Shakespeare at all in Japan of 1960s, which makes sense. Um, well, it's not 1960s. It's a lot late. Earlier 1959. Than yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, uh, was has he only written uh, comedies <laughs> at first? Yes, I we are in a better not. position to say that no, he's done a, his history plays are not exactly comedies, are they? Yeah, uh, I guess like. If if you argue that his original stuff, you could potentially go, oh, they were only comedies at first, but um, Titus Andronicus begs to differ. I would love to see Osamu Tezuka's <laughs> Titus Andronicus. Jesus Lord, yes. Oh yeah, it's a comedy play. It's fine. How dare you? You would you would have them cutting out. You you would have a, a sight gag where they put googly eyes in Lavinia after her, after. Her. I, actually, they don't cut out her eyes, but you would have them doing some sight gag, putting prosthetic hands on her or something. Mickey Mouse hands. They give her Mickey Mouse hands after that. No. 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 But after, Sophie, you've learned how Princess Knight ended, he'd do a brilliant or fitting Taming of the Shrew, wouldn't he? Yes. We, we've forcefully plucked out your boy heart, Katharina. <laughs> you are now, you're going to be good and demure from now on, Katrina. No individuality for you. Uh... But in terms of, like, condensing, like, Merchant of Venice into a practically a fairy tale um, in the, set in the modern day, um was well done um he obviously had to remove a lot of what made merchant of venice what it is which is the speeches the monologues um you know mercy like rain um and having stripped merchant of venice of that you do really only get a silly little um and i said they're not even nice to call it silly silly little but you do get a bare bones fairy tale out of it. Yeah, when you remove, this is one of those things where it goes to show that execution is primarily what matters. And I will, this is well executed. It is a good story. Uh, Tezuka does it better than most people do. But there is a reason why 
Shakespeare's one is a masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 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 other two people um, featured to collect the the chests makes me go oh oh. Yes, he is certainly a, uh, uh, a a very mainstream Japanese male writer in the uh, 1950s. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that he immediately claims that this is not his story. Um, you open Merchant of Venice. Um, first page is um, a dude in, you know, a Victorian suit, I guess, with a, with a three-candle... Um, I think that's meant to be his own caricature dressed up in, you know, white wig and, you know, sort of that yoldy European court dress. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely him. Um, usually in glasses and a really bumpy nose. He has a lot of noses. Um, but yeah, no, this story that's about to be told is William Shakespeare's um, masterpiece, Merchant of Venice. Um, reworked in the modern times. Um so yeah, he doesn't claim it to be his own um, immediately. And part of me is like, is that because um, he doesn't like the story? Or he's like... Um, I mean, let's just be honest. This is... I mean, we've been talking about how it differs from Shakespeare, but this is pretty close to what to the plot points of Shakespeare's one. Well, yeah, plot points of Shakespeare with a few, with a few weird tweaks um, definitely is very... Um, What's the word? Faithful. Faithful. Yes, faithful. It's for um, what it is. It is quite faithful, aside from the the tweaks that I actually quite like. Bassanio actually likes Portia for who she is, just as a pretty lady. Yes, um, he loves her for a far more valid reason, not because she's rich, but because she's hot. Yes, and you know what? Between it's like, oh, I'd rather like your your how you look versus I like what you have is uh I think a lesser evil. Um and I think um I prefer Bassanio kind of being tricked into um taking money from Shylock as opposed to um Antonio. <laughs> bullying Shylock into giving money to his friend and just insulting him all the way while he's doing it at the same time. And it's just like, come on, man. <laughs> Antonio, you're not a nice man. Um, and yet the occasion, he's like, oh, you were willing to risk my life for your friend? Mm, I'm going to take the ring that I told you not to give anyone. Those tweaks are quite cute. And um, I think they make for a smoother story, considering you need as smooth a possible a story when you have 40, 40 pages. Yes, and I'm not quite sure what, who the audience of this was. I don't know which magazine this was done in. Maybe it was for children? I did, uh, I did also wonder about that. Uh, the problem with manga is that you, most of them are kind of like age ambivalent. Like, you know, you have 30, 40, 50-year-olds reading Shonen. I mean, we're talking about 1959, so maybe it was a bit different back then. 
Oh, yeah, that is true. I think the um, audience is still kind of child-oriented. I think the more sort of adult thing, part of why there was a backlash against him in the 1960s was that he was still doing these sort of relatively inoffensive sort of comics where, you know, now people are doing political works and stuff like that. He's allowed to live in his niche. Come on, guys. He broke out of that niche. You can't deny that. Yeah, yeah. His art style did not, but that can't really be helped. <laughs> Doing his searing World War Two <laughs> series, Message to Adolf. Did you like that one, Sophie? I have been too afraid to read it, and I am planning on never reading it also. And he also did Alabaster, the one where the plot synopsis, the initial plot concept, it sounds like if someone misunderstood. They heard of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and they sort of misunderstood it. So he heard, oh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, that's about racism in America. What if there was an actual Invisible Man in it? <laughs> well, the plot of that one is that, so there's a, there's a black man in America, and he's framed for a race crime he didn't commit, and so he's put in prison, and he says, the reason why my problems exist is because of racism, so I want to be invisible. This mad scientist says he can make me invisible. Ah, but only his skin becomes invisible. So you just see the flesh and blood underneath his skin. And he then... Really <laughs> then it becomes just a very regular sort of dark crime story. The race angle is entirely forgotten. It keeps on going just with him being sort of a criminal mastermind. Yeah, um... I guess he really wanted to use his medical um, degree as much as possible, just draw a lot of muscle lines, a lot of veins. That's the only thing that I can think of to make himself go through that. Even he said afterwards that this, this he said, if they weren't reprinting my complete works, I probably would never have reprinted this story. <laughs> That was Osamu Tezuka's Merchant of Venice. Tezuka Osamu no Venice no Shonin. So, Sophie, uh, as good as Shakespeare or better than Shakespeare? None of the above. <laughs> None of the above. Oh, uh... so you're saying you didn't like it, you loved it. <laughs> I thought it, okay, so my first impression was, oh, wow, this is very narrow, or at least, like, a very bullet points um, way of taking this, because of course it is. Um, it's it's short, um, and he has cut out most of the... I will put it like you say bullet points. As you said before, I think you said streamlined or smoother. Yeah. It is that. It doesn't it, it is shorter, but it doesn't feel like it has all the necessary parts in a decently enough delivered way. Yeah. Um so my first impression was mm. but um in terms of as a medium, um it is a very good um depiction of Merchant of Venice streamline edition. He does architecture quite well. We have a beautiful, um, when um, Antonio and Bassani are talking on the gondola about needing money, um, they go under a, a very nice bridge. Um, 
Yes, it's you like have... that I, in that, you know, that uh, the Japanese, uh, the Nation in 20 Lies book by Harding or someone, they did mention that you can see the influence of Urge, where you have these very cartoony characters in the foreground, but in the background, these very realistic nature scenes and buildings in the background. Yeah. Um, and you have uh, moments in the the comic that is very comic-oriented that gives more oomph to the scene. Um, Shylock is pointing at both the reader and the judge going, no, you have to do me justice. And his fist is slightly outside of his panel, um, giving more emphasis to his demand. You have the, the few panels where um, Bassanio is just enamored by Portia. Um, and as much as I like go, as much as I, as I go, Tezuka, come on, man. Um, when the TV magnet dies in a in a hail of not even not a hail I guess but in an uplift an updraft of balloons it's funny I hate it but it's funny <laughs> and it makes a great justification for the boxes um, so um, it's it's cute and it's delightful if um, you want a kid to enjoy Merchant of Venice without any of the very heavy subtext. This is a good choice. So yes, I mean, yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, perhaps I have, uh, for a separate thing, as I've said, I have translated the entirety of this work, so maybe I am uh, filled with Stockholm Syndrome regarding this, but it is definitely worth reading. It is an interesting, funny, it is, it certainly doesn't have any of the pathos of the original. But, you know, if you want, like, a brief rundown of the plot, if you want an interesting way of doing the plot, you you should read this. I mean, put aside the anti-black racism and what I have now learned is anti-gay bigotry. But other than that, quite good. Yeah, no, there are some depictions of, of stereotypes that are definitely of its time. And um, the only good thing about them is that they're super short, like two pages and they're done. You don't have to worry about them ever again. And having them losing their speeches is also a good thing because then, like, Tezuka couldn't butcher them any more than he'd already had. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. He is, his style is quite different from Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's the unfortunate thing that just because there are very few, if any, actually straight comic book adaptations of Shakespeare. I mean, they'll take the plot and they'll do certain things, but you're not going to find many that actually just take the words of Shakespeare. I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, those th those ones that I said, therefore, high school students who can't actually be bothered reading it, but those ones aren't that good. You'll rarely find an actually artistic doing of Shakespeare in comics. Don't know why that is, might just be because it's difficult to fit all those words onto a comics page in a readable manner, but... Oh, what do you'll... you think of... Well, what, what, then what about, um, you know, the, the something of the roses? 
Requiem of the Rose King. The Requiem of the Rose I King. Mean, they they do insert some of the lines, but I when I say straight Shakespeare thing, I mean just like a, a movie version, take Shakespeare's script and does it there. You yeah, won't find fair. many comics that just take Shakespeare's script. Yeah. And I'd say that's in part because I mean I remember there was something that Tana Coates was talking about. He's saying that his writing style is it partly inspired by comic books. And he means it seriously. Because superhero comics, they have to be very grand sounding words, but also because of the space restrictions, they need to be very concise. So it is this sort of grandiosity, but also because, you know, there's only so much physical geometric space on a page, you need to make the words short. So with Shakespeare, they're re- if you try to fit even like 50% of his words into a comic, they will be in like three-point font. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're really not wrong. There was one, and I think this proves the point, there was one adaptation of Hamlet. And this was, I haven't read it, but, you know, this was an oversized thing. This was, you know, as big as one of those old-fashioned Bibles. And so, you know, you had to lay it on a table even to read it. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yes. So, yeah, this is the kind of adaptation that uh, is probably the best we're going to get. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll figure... I'm sure there must be some comic adaptation of Shakespeare that's good. But anyway, next... We have done two months doing Edward II, Christopher Marlowe. Now we, we, we tiptoed right back up to Shakespeare with Osamu Tezuka's Shakespeare. Next month, we're going to go right back to Shakespeare. We are doing the big ones. Midsummer Night's Dream, and, you know, that's uh, not finally one of the good ones. Finally one of the good ones. Will I enjoy it? I will not know until I've read it again. Wait, was, have I read a bit? No, I've only read, like, a little bit of it because drama class made me. And before, my, my first experience with A Midsummer Night's Dream was the episodes of the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon where they intercut a prison break of all the supervillains with auditions for A Midsummer Night's Dream and the, and the Green Goblin quoting Puck. <sighs> That hurts me deeply. It's like that early kind of, let's show that comics aren't just for kids. Let me quote this this old literature entirely out of context. <laughs> God damn it. Oh well. But anyway, next time, A Midsummer Night's Dream. See you! See you! Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Powell. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.